Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Book Network's page for Science, Technology, and Society. I'm Patrick Sleeney. Today I'm talking to Jessica Tisch about her new book, Engineering Nature, Water Development, and the Global Spread of American Environmental Expertise. Uh, In the book, Tisch examines the way that California engineers attempted to reshape their world as the late 19th century turned into the 20th. Engineered irrigation appealed to both private individuals and the state as a way of mediating California's competing water interests, of creating prosperity, and of fulfilling an American agrarian ideal. Ideas about irrigation, settlement, and development circulated the world, and T shows how California's experts themselves traveled to Australia, to South Africa, and to Palestine, um, frequently returning with new knowledge that they applied to California. Despite their aspirations, few of of California's engineers were as successful as they wished to be, but then they had a lot to contend with. Tisha's engineers inserted themselves into the tumultuous social transformations at the turn of the 20th century, attempting to shape capitalism, all levels of government, and even the developing nation-state, not only in California, but around the world. Hi, Jessica. Hi, Patrick. Welcome to the New Book Network's page for History of Science, Technology, and Society. Thank you for having me. Today we're talking about your new book, uh, Engineering Nature, Water Development and the Global Spread of American Environmental Expertise. Uh, But before we get into that, why don't you uh, start the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. And I can also give you a little background of how I got to this topic. Um, I am an independent scholar, but I was affiliated with the University of California at Berkeley for about seven years. Um, I did my master's and my Ph.D. there. And when I was writing my master's thesis, I looked at water development and irrigation development and um, the development of hydropower in northern California. Um, in the late 19th and early early 20th centuries. And when I was doing that, I was doing a lot of archival research in the Bancroft Library, and I was looking at a lot of engineers' papers. And when I was looking through these engineers' papers, um, I realized that not only were engineers who were based in California working in California on California's projects, but they, in fact, they were also acting as consultants for governments and for companies and businesses and exploration companies all around the world, Um, notably in places that resembled California in geography, notably its semi-arid environment. Um, And so when I was looking at through the papers, I was thinking, you know, this is really interesting. I haven't seen any studies that have actually looked at Um, the effect of engineers around the world and what they tried to do around the world in environments that looked very similar to California, at least to them. So uh, when I finished my master's, I enrolled in the Ph.D. program in geography, and this is what I decided to study. Um, I looked at a network of engineers that were primarily based in California, that worked in California starting uh, about the time of the gold rush up through the 1920s, 1930s, um, until World War II. And I looked at how they tried to implement the projects that they had worked on in California around the world in climates and geographies that they thought looked very similar to their own. So that's kind of a little bit of background as to how I got interested in this subject. 
And then my case studies, um, India, uh, Australia, Palestine, uh, it's Hawaii, uh, kind of were guided by where these engineers went and the network of engineers that had very close ties to each other. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's interesting that California becomes such an engine of, I guess, the, the development of this expertise and the export of this expertise. So can we, I, I don't know, can you say a little bit about, I mean, I guess what makes California distinctive and what, why do they see this potential for irrigation there? Sure. Sure. Um, first, I do have to say that it wasn't it's not that California engineers were better engineers or had more expertise than other engineers around the world. You really saw engineers from Australia going around the world. You saw engineers from India go around the world. Um, but California was unique in certain ways in that um, they really gained a lot of expertise in the gold rush, where not only did they have to manage a lot of the mining problems, but they also had to manage a lot of the water issues that came out of the mining issues. So in that respect, California is unique. And it's unique um, for irrigation that you have the pot great potential for irrigation because you have the Sierra Nevada mountains, for example, that are kind of smack in, in the middle of the state, and you have the snowfall that comes off of those. And then you have the Sacramento River, um, in the north and the San Joaquin River in the south. And those are pretty, those are the, the state's largest rivers that can be harnessed and that can be used for irrigation. California is unique in that there were a whole host of problems associated with gold mining that made irrigation very difficult, or at least an orderly sense of irrigation very difficult to do. So California was unique in that um, its water management, at least for agriculture and irrigation, uh, took off as a result of this conf these confused mining laws that, in in effect, confused water laws. Okay, um, and I guess so. How do California? I mean, the Californians themselves realize there's lots of potential for the usefulness of irrigation, right? So, what mm -hmm. are some of the? I guess the what are some of the parties that try to shape California irrigation? Oh, there were. I mean, it, it starting from. I mean, coming out from the gold rush, there were really no clear laws. There was a law called first in time, first in right, where water users could basically claim the banks of a water and use that water to the detriment of its neighbor downstream so that nobody downstream could get the water if a user claimed all the water on the banks of the river. Um, it evolved, of course, when um, the state uh, decided to become involved in irrigation and realized that really nobody was able to irrigate in any sort of efficient manner uh, when upstream users were claiming a disproportionate share of the usable water. Um, so there were various government entities um, after the gold rush that stepped in and um, tried to make sense of these water claims. Um, one that I discuss in the book um, is a state engineering office that was that was founded in I believe the 1850s. That was uh, led by William Hammond Hall, who was one of the engineers who's a thread across the entire book. He was one of the, the engineers that had traveled to all sorts of different places and tried to implement his state-run programs that he had tried to do in California um, in parts around the world. So that's one example of how the state became involved. Um, it was initially very unsuccessful due to um, legal battles over water use. Um, the state engineering office also wasn't funded properly. Uh, nature conspired against the state engineering office when William Hammond Hall was trying to um, implement some of his plans, such as 
uh, dams across some of the rivers, um, basically they were washed away by floods. So early irrigation attempts that were led by the state were pretty unsuccessful. But there are some successful private, I guess, attempts at irrigation. There are. You know, this always seems to happen where, you know, the private entrepreneurs step in when the public fails. And that's exactly what happened in California. Um, One example that I talk about in the book um, is the example of the private irrigation colonies that the Chafee brothers established in Southern California. And this is about the 1880s, 1890s. Um, The Chafee brothers had originally come from uh, Canada and they had settled in California, bought land in California, and they had tried to implement model colonies in Southern California. And so this is without state aid. This is completely privately funded and it relied on, um, basically private planning, business planning, um, the agrarian ideal. These were very, very idealistic water projects where, um, the Chafees would select a group of very select uh, farmers or workers or even people with no previous uh, farming experience or irrigation experience, but who expressed the desire and, very importantly, had the capital to come into this irrigation colony and join what was basically a planned, a planned little mini, mini town uh, with agriculture at its roots. Um, so that's an example of where private entrepreneurs stepped in to a climate that was still very haphazard with regard to public regulation and water law. Um, Again, this didn't exactly work either. Um, It it might have worked and it had worked in other places, um, but it relied on local, these colonies, especially in Ontario and Southern California, relied on local measures when what was really needed was centralized planning. Um, The Chafees also found that a lot of the settlers defaulted on their initial capital. A lot of them had no farming experience, despite some training. Um, and also the Chafees started these projects at a time that was really inopportune for them. They started it during a depression in the 1890s and during droughts, when really agriculture probably would have failed even um, had there been a really a really efficient water system in place. So it was planned at the wrong time. Um, at the same time, it really, I think... Uh, helped put Cal- parts of California on the path to, uh, I want to say, new technical innovation. The Chafees really engineered a bunch of um, uh, different pipes and, and small dams and irrigation works that really could have worked had they been planned at a more opportune time and had they really had the capital um, and the settlers with experience who could have implemented that. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem like the Chafees... Um, were recognized as failures because I think one of the things that's so interesting about the book is the way that you show that this the the way that the ideas and people circulate from California sort of around the world. So, for instance, I mean, um, ideas about water water use are incorporated into um, all policies in Australia, like in Victoria. Um, and right. in fact, right, the Chafees get invited to Australia to set up a town, and water laws from Australia. Our, um, or ideas about settlement, for instance, are, are brought back to California later on and put into right. things like the no, I, think, I, I don't think at the, I don't think. I mean, when you read all sorts of booster claims at the yeah. time, certainly the Chafee's irrigation colonies in Southern California 
were not seen as a failure. And they didn't want to be seen as a failure. I mean, they wanted the capital come in. They wanted California to be recognized as the breadbasket of the world. They wanted this idealistic rural life complete with a church and little stores and family life and rural life. I mean, everything you romanticize about rural life, that's exactly what they wanted. Um, you know, in, in the book, I do point out, though, that there were certain problems that beset the Chafees that really, I think, affected the longevity of these colonies. So in the end, I don't think they lasted as long as they could have lasted. Um, the towns still exist, of course. Ooh, um, yeah. But the 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 ideals that guided the the implementation of the colonies no longer exist. Right. And that's a particularly American vision of like mm. the, of small town and sort of rural agrarian life, right? So how does that work when it's exported to Australia, for instance? Um, well, it worked pretty differently in Australia. I mean, you have to look at the different political and social climates of Australia and California at the time. And this is, again, um, uh, the, the, the turn of the century, so late late 1900s, early 20th century. Um, California was um, a democracy, free market. Um, Australia, under various administrators, uh, notably Alfred Deakin, um, was turning a little bit more towards socialism and never really socialism, but definitely Australia at the time uh, when it became a, a nation. And it privileged a lot more um, national and public control over natural resources. And one of those resources was water. Um, so the, the Chafee's vision of a privately run irrigation colony or set of colonies um, transported from California did, did not work as well given the different political climate in Australia. You know, that was really key, I think, to um, what I think can be said would be the failures of the Chafee's colonies in Australia. It's just this thoroughly different state apparatus? Thoroughly different state apparatus. Um, again, the Chafees also encountered bad luck, I'd say. You know, again, they exported a lot of the, the ideals and the, the technology and the business practices they had used in California. And a lot of them did, were, hadn't been necessarily appropriate in California, and they weren't appropriate in, in Australia either. You know, drawing settlers with no experience. Right. Um, maybe some bad business practices. Right. There's also these problems that even though the climate looks similar, the landscape is actually quite different, right? And the of sources course. of renewable water are very of different. Of course. I mean, I think a lot of these engineers that took these ideals from California and took these blueprints for change around the world um, really saw similarities in landscape um, between California and, and other countries like Australia. And really, the landscape wasn't very similar. I mean, you could look at a landscape and say, oh, there's a river. Oh, there are mountains. Snow comes off the mountains into the rivers. Um, it feeds the plains. And again, you know, it's seasonal. It might not happen exactly the way you want it. The, the, the landscapes are very different, despite what we would call semi-arid environments. This question about, I mean, the political differences in California and Australia was interesting to me, too, because one of the things that I think you show really well um, is how kind of not I mean, it's a tumultuous time period, but there's so many different attitudes and, and approaches to thinking about what development is. Mm-hmm. Right. And how and I guess how what are some of the interesting things that you saw about how these California engineers saw their role mediating these sort of deep political conflicts that are going on around the world? Well, it's interesting because this is a little bit later, but one of the the engineers I um, 
talk about who was trained in California and went around the world is John Hayes Hammond, who happened to be a cousin of William Hammond Hall. And he was one of the first professionally trained engineers, and he wrote a book called The Engineer. And what's really interesting is that if you go to, if you're trained as an engineer today, you're trained as an engineer. You know, how, depending on what you do, you know the technology, you know the nuts and bolts. You don't necessarily know the context. You go in and you build your your dam, your your pipes. What I mean, it's much more complicated now. But you build whatever you do. Your trains build it. You go in and you leave. At least that's how I interpret the role more so today. At the time, though, when John Hayes Hammond and William William Hammond Hall, to a lesser extent, he was a slightly earlier generation, the engineer was really becoming a professional man. And I say man because they were all men at the time. Um, And the engineer was trained in all sorts of different things, not only the nuts and bolts of engineering. They were trained in um, how to deal with natives. They were dealed with, they uh, were trained in how to um, understand hygiene in different countries. They were trained in um, politics, um, different social issues. So they were really kind of, um, I want to say, men of all trades, although it becomes very debatable that they were actually men of all trades when they went to a host country and tried to implement what they thought they knew into a different country. So even though they were trained in all sorts of different subjects, um, they really were engineers at heart. And they, with this civilizing mission to civilize what they saw as an arid, semi-arid environment, tame it, uh, whether this was mining or irrigation, and uh, most of it was irrigation, and really do, really do what they set out to do from a technological standpoint. So technology was really key to their endeavor, even though they were trained in all sorts of other subjects as well. And I think that the fact that they were trained in other subjects got them in a little bit of hot tr- uh, hot water in, in different countries. You, know, you look at John Hayes Hammond in South Africa, and um, he didn't want to be a politician necessarily, but he uh, befriended the politicians, uh, Cecil Rhodes, uh, most notably, and became involved in politics where really it probably wasn't the role of the engineer to, to do so. And that, in turn, affected the success of the projects that some of these engineers set out to do. Okay. Can you say a little bit more about that? I mean, what happens to Hammond Hall? Well, uh, what happened to, oh, to John Hayes Hammond? Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Oh. Yeah, sorry. Uh, what happened to John Hayes Hammond was that he... Um, became involved in the Jameson Raid, which was uh, a precursor to the Boer War. And um, he brought his American ideals to South Africa, which was a, a colonial colonial environment, uh, very separated by racial tensions and uh, cl- a class system. And he came with American ideals. Uh, his, I think it was his grandfather or uncle had had fought in the United States, and John Hayes his Hammond brought these ideals of, uh, you know, let's free the people, let's free, let's free everybody from, you know, the uncivilized, the uncivilized um, climate of South Africa. And he got in a lot of trouble. He he led a group of of, of so-called revolutionaries. Um, over the border in South Africa and got himself a lot of trouble. And in the end, he ended up leaving South Africa. Uh, he was not hanged. He was not executed. Um, but he uh, did spend, I think, a little bit of time in jail, and his wife had to come rescue him. Um, and that was the end of John Hayes Hammond in South Africa. 
And this was all because he had uh, gone over there. He he had done a lot of um, actually uh, mining work. So he had been sent over um, to do to uh, develop some of the big larger gold mines there. And I mean, I guess you use the term that um, I think that the engineers see themselves as a middle ground or, or mediators between the two political parties in all of these conflicts. Right. right and, and labor and capital. And I think right. that was key as well. Yeah. And this is a sort of a common thing for turn of the century engineers. It is because yeah. again, they weren't just trained to go in there, implement their, what they needed to do under the guidance of whoever hired them there right. and then leave. They stayed or they tried to stay. Yeah. Except, so, I mean, one of the other interesting cases you talk about is this case of Palestine, where it turns out that actually there, I mean, Palestine's another case where you've got, you know, a kind of new and novel thing happening at the, at the turn of the 20th century, where people are trying to create a new Jewish state and irrigate all this land. Um, you know, and it's a place where it looks like you could have a lot of space for engineering and you need it, but it turns out, I mean, it seems like the engineers spend all their time trying to teach the Zionist settlers how to be capitalists. Properly. Right, exactly. Right. Exactly. I mean, for a large part, the capitalist mentality was really key to the successful implementation of successful irrigation. I mean, that really was, especially in places where the, the state didn't step in. Um, and the Palestine case is interesting um, because it, at the time, it wasn't a capitalist. Palestine wasn't a capitalist state. Um, of course, there were all sorts of people that had had come over, but the state had established itself, or what it was in the process of establishing itself more um, as a socialist enterprise. And one of the iterations of this enterprise uh, was the kibbutz, which was a I don't want to say socialist; it was more collective, um, where individuals contributed certain amounts to the society and they weren't rewarded um, commensurately. Uh, they were all expected to work at their various, their various jobs and the collective output was their reward. Uh, so really very little capitalist mentality. Um, but when El- Elwood Mead, who uh, was one of the uh, engineers I examined, who had worked in California and he later worked for the Bureau of Reclamation, when he went to Palestine in the 1920s, what he found was that um, this collective ideology had really trumped practicality and business skills and decisions on the part of settlers, especially in the Moshevim and the Kibbutzim, um, even where some of them were more privately guided. And so this is an example where um, agricultural settlement and irrigation works uh, were equally ineffective because um, of the lack of this capitalist mentality. Okay. You know, this is a case where idealism really got in the way of of successful, successfully, really putting together a, a, a settlement. A, really, right? A settlement, right, right. I remember. I think it, it's one one quote. One settler said, "Well, you know." I'd be I'd be happy to work, but that you know, how would I look pulling pulling a plow? A plow, yeah. A plow, yeah. Yeah. I guess I mean, this is a moment where people are really wrestling with capitalism and they're wrestling with the role of the state, and there's a lot of hope that engineers can sort of tame capitalism or work to make capitalism more humane. Um, and I guess that there needs some alliance with the state. So I guess I want to go back to California maybe and ask. Why the 
why, I mean, partly why the state-based stuff failed, right? Mm-hmm. But also why then did the Federal Bureau of Reclamation succeed in its sort of big engine, uh, irrigation projects in California where others had failed? Oh, the Bureau of Reclamation, as yeah. opposed to... Like the, the, the state Reclamation. office of engineers and all that sort well, of stuff. Well, the state office of, uh, the, 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 the state engineering office, I mean, it, it had no money. It existed for a few years, but was underfunded by the state. Um, and there hadn't been, there were a couple of examples, for example, Elwood Mead, who was a state engineer of Wyoming, that was a resounding success. Um, but the state engineering in California failed. Different conditions, of course, uh, different funding. Um, I think one of the big difference was that, differences is that um, the United States was slowly developing this history of public works, or I would say um, investment in public works. I mean, you look, the railroads are a good example. The state had a history of funding certain infrastructural projects. The railroads are a very good case. So the, the, the federal government was slowly dipping its toes in work that the state had states had tried to take on, but that private capitalists had mostly done up until, I'd say, the mid to late 19th century. The, so you see the, the, the um, reclamation service of the Federal Bureau of Reclamation stepping in in all parts of California um, after private irrigation had largely failed and after the state engineering office and other state efforts had failed and um, picking up picking up the pieces. What kinds of resistance does the Federal Bureau face? Oh, it faces immense resistance. Yeah. So, I mean, just in the same way that it faced resistance from, um, you know, people who had owned land where the railroads were going through. I mean, you still had all sorts of competing claims in California. People owned their land. They didn't want the Bureau of Reclamation drowning a town to build a dam and a reservoir or they didn't want the Bureau of Reclamation taking over a town. Oh, there was immense resistance, immense resistance. And of course, so, so of course, it, it, the Bureau of Reclamation worked very piecemeal and some projects were more successful than others and some projects it couldn't even get a toehold in. So, I mean, I guess it isn't really that, you know, it's just the federal government is a stronger state than the state government. It's still all of this contextual, each case is negotiated on its own. It is. It is to a certain extent, up until a point, too, up until really the, the Bureau of Reclamation becomes the main entity for reclamation in California. And when do you think that is? Or oh, that just happened that? until about the, 20, I mean, early 20th century is when it starts, right. really. And it doesn't happen until probably the New Deal or up in you know, the, the decade leading up until the New Deal, where it really takes takes over projects that had either been state initiated or initiated by private capitalists. OK. So much of the book is about um, the agrarian agrarian ideals and different visions of the agrarian mm-hmm. ideal. Does the, does the I mean, does the Federal Bureau of Reclamation end up abandoning all that stuff or not really? necessarily think so. It's hard to say because when you look at the projects of the Bureau of Reclamation, I mean, you think of a federal government as kind of a personality-less entity. Of course, it's guided by individuals, individual engineers, individual politicians, public leaders um, who still have ideals and they have ideals and the technology 
and the practices they use to implement that technology are to a certain extent going to reflect their ideals. But I don't think the ideals were as strong as those, for example, as the Chafee brothers, who really advertise this agrarian ideal, come own your own little bungalow with your own plot of land and grow your own vegetables and fruit and tend to common orchards and sell your fruit and make a living off the land. I don't, I, that, that seemed, even though like the Chafee brothers, it was a collective enterprise in some ways, but it was also a highly individualistic dream. And I might even call it the American dream at that time. It's kind of the last gasp of this kind of vision of independent producers as it, the bedrock of the republic, right? It is. It is. And that, uh, again, the nation was evolving and the nation couldn't sustain that vision or that dream. And I think the Bureau of Reclamation and other federal agencies, too, the soil, the US, the soil service, the U.S. Geological Service, they didn't re- quite reflect that ideal. Yeah. Um, you know, in a way, it was the government kind of trumping the dream of the individual. Of course, uh, they didn't trump the individuals, but um, they really kind of distorted that dream or took over that dream. Right. Although, I mean, that dream is incredibly problematic, even in the the case, in the t- oh. in the time period, right? So, of course, yeah. of course. But again, it was that dream, I think, that guided so many of these ill-fated enterprises. Right. Um, we've taken up a good chunk of your time, and I know you have other things to do, but I guess I just wanted to ask you, because, I mean, one of the other things about the book is about, I guess, the role of engineers in through and through settler colonialism, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I guess, I mean, it's it's like... What, I mean, what, what worked, what is the role, I guess, of this, this agrarian idealism, these ideals of self-labor, of independent existence, um, and their relationship to the new technology of engineering and settler colonialism around the world? Do you have anything, any final thoughts about that? Well, all I can say is, you know, we talked a little bit about the ideal and how engineers had this ideal in a way that some seem to do today, but it was really this ideal in some way that guided a lot of this engineering infrastructure and development. Um, and, and in some cases, it was engineers maybe with less of an ideal that came into an inhospitable place with their technology and tried to implement their technology for irrigation, for mining, in a climate where, or political climate that was totally inhospitable. But what I would say is that You know, we talked a little bit about the agrarian dream, too, and how that was really a guiding dream of part of the 19th century. And I would say that even today, there's a dream that guides engineers as well. It's very different. But I mean, look at look at computer engineers. Look at the Internet. Look at I mean, is a dream so different? Sure. It's a completely different dream in terms of what it looks like. Right. Okay. Today, we're looking at, you know, large global society where communication is like nothing we've seen before. Business is nothing like we've seen before. But it's still guided by a dream, correct? Like if you're a software engineer, you're even working on a tiny, minutest part of some program, you're guided by an ideal of connecting the world or you're guided by an ideal of, of, you know, bringing more technology to other parts of the world. And this sounds really crude, but civilizing parts of the world that were uncivilized. And I use that as, as, as a way of um, 
not saying that parts of Africa are uncivilized, but this is a terminology that engineers used in the 19th century. And I want to say that this kind of enlightenment mentality might not be so different today. The technology is different and the people are different. The cultures are different. The politics are different. But I do want to do think that there's some sort of this enlightening enlightenment ideal or this ideal of dry drawing the world closer together and making it look more similar looking making parts of it look more similar and creating more of a common world culture that really persists okay and if well, that makes sense it's not making the rest of the world look like california anymore it's making you know the rest of the world look like seattle or something now <laughs> or it's making the rest of the world connected through right, technology right. in a way that California tries to do as well on a different scale and in a different time and using different technology. Okay. Thank you very much. You're welcome. That was my conversation with Jessica Tisch about her book, Engineering Nature. The book is very valuable in at least two respects. Um, the one is just showing the importance and the difficulties and the multiplicity of ways that engineers um, shaped really the development of capitalist and industrial society, agrarian society in particular, um, but also I think for demonstrating the ways in which Americans were, and American expertise was engaging with, already with the world before sort of 1898, um, a, a period when we, in the late 19th century, when we often think of America as isolated, or at least we don't tell the story of the United States as one in which Americans aren't connected to the rest of the world. So it's a good book, give it a read. <laughs>